welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on January 29th, Lord's Day Service. So this is the final week of January, which means this is the final week of Sunday School until probably April will be the next round. So uh, next week, don't come at 9.15 expecting Sunday School. Uh, That won't be happening, uh, but probably again in April. So this is then the third week of our Sunday School focusing on gender and sexuality. And so the first week... You'll remember we looked at gender and Genesis, and we looked at the book of Genesis, the first few chapters, and asked what can we learn about male and female, what can we learn about gender in the book of Genesis, and and, and thereby we, we laid some biblical foundations for this discussion. Last week we looked at gender and theory, what is the history of gender theory, and we tried to walk through some of that, tying its roots back into especially second wave feminism and some of the peculiar ideas coming out of that. This week we're going to focus on gender and sex and using the word sex there as a verb. So gender and sex, how does the gender paradigm pervert sex? So that's our focus today and we'll go ahead and and plug, uh, there is going to be a fourth installment, not here live, but uh, for the podcast, it's just hard to, uh, it's hard to get everything done in three weeks. So you can look for that in a week or two. There will be the, the fourth and final installment of this series, and that'll be called Gender and Sex, uh, but the sex then will be a noun. And so uh, that, that'll be talking about how, <clears throat> how gender and sex have come to be thought of as two distinct and separate things. So that'll be the focus on that fourth talk. But for today, it's gender and sex, sex as a verb. How does the gender paradigm pervert sex? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope you've planted in our hearts. We ask for your supporting arm this morning that you would sanctify our hearts and our minds. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So really, there's two objectives today. The first is to see some of the implications of gender theory on sex. And then the second objective is to consider a few things that Scripture has to say on the matter. And the reason we need to talk about this, the reason we need to talk about gender and sex, and again, remember this is being used as a verb here, is because it's really important to understand that what's going on with gender theory and all of it is tied to the sexual revolution that goes back at least as far as the 1960s. And so when you look at the broader topic of the sexual revolution, this is part of that topic. And so we're going to consider a few implications of gender theory on sex. So the first implication has to do with the issue of restraint. The issue of restraint. And ever since the development of the pill, no longer in society is there an expectation of sexual restraint for some higher good or for some sort of moral purpose. And so by restraint, I'm talking about Christian virtue as it relates to sex, which recognizes that happiness does not come when people surrender to their lusts. And that's one of the the big antithesis between the sexual revolution and Christians. The sexual revolution is presenting this idea that when we are allowed to fulfill our lusts, that brings happiness. But the Christian worldview looks at this very differently and says that happiness does not come when we just blindly surrender ourselves to lust. And so gender theory is a green light for people to surrender to their most perverted desires, to their most perverted lusts. But Christians understand that happiness exists within the work of virtue. Happiness exists within a lifestyle of virtue that's seated under the authority of God. And so that means the virtuous life leads to the happy life, and the happy life is cultivating a set of habits. And as it relates to 
sexual behavior, those habits often start with habits of self-control or habits of restraint so that we don't just become pawns of our appetites. And so what happens when there is no restraint? Well, when there is no restraint, when there is no self-control on these matters, the most common thing is that men begin to see women as merely outlets for their sexual appetite. And when this happens, men are not in control. That's the great lie of the sexual revolution. But you are not in control if you are a slave to your appetite. And so, rather than being in control, you are being controlled. When a man makes a woman an object, he's really making an animal of himself. That's, that's how things operate in the animal kingdom. There is no restraint. There is no self-control. There is no moral guidelines for these things. The man in this situation has forgotten the reverence due to a woman. And the reverence has to do with recognizing that a woman is a human being, as we've talked about in the previous weeks, body and soul. And so when a man makes a woman an object, he has disregarded her human side. He's disregarded her spiritual side, her emotional side. In other words, he's disregarded her personhood and made her into an instrument for satisfying his desire. And so this is the culture that has lost restraint. What does a world without restraint look like? Well, this is what it looks like. A culture that has lost the virtue of restraint has lots of cheap sex. Cheap sex means cheapened people. And cheapened people means enslaved people because they are enslaved to their lust. They're enslaved to their appetites. And within the sexual revolution, in particular with gender theory, they operate under the instrumentalist view of sex. And so the gender paradigm operates on the instrumentalist view of sex. And the instrumentalist view of sex, again, this is, this is the view within just the broader sexual revolution as well, is when the person is seen as a tool or an instrument to someone else's self-centered ends. And so sex is operating in this way, where the other person is just an instrument to these desires or needs or appetites or lusts that we have. And so in an unrestrained society, in a society without restraint, without self-control, a new view of the person emerges. And this view of the person views people lacking dignity, lacking embodied personhood. They are merely a physical thing. They're not also a spiritual thing. And so a, a, a person operating under gender theory or a uh, a pro-prostitution feminist, this is one of the new things of, this is one of the differences between second wave feminism, third wave feminism. Second wave feminism would admit that pornography was a problem, that prostitution was a problem. Third wave feminists now are wanting to assert that pornography is good, um, that it's empowering to women, uh, and that prostitution also is good and empowering to women. And so a pro-prostitution feminist defending the instrumentalist view of sex might hear me criticizing that and they might retort, well, what about a restaurant server? Aren't you using someone as an instrument there? Aren't you using someone as a means to an end when you, when you pay her to bring you a hamburger? But the difference here as Abigail Favale points out is that when it comes to prostitution and sexual exploitation, the person becomes the burger. That which is consumed and commodified is not food, but it's the prostitute's own body. It's her very self. And so the first implication of gender theory on sex has to do with the issue of restraint. The second implication of gender theory on sex is the issue of consent, the issue of consent. So in gender theory, in the broader sexual revolution, the only guiding moral imperative is consent. And basically consent means 
that you can do it if you want to do it. And the, the only moral boundary is the desire of the two parties involved. And so notice what the principle of consent assumes. It, it assumes that you can do anything you want to do and that there are no moral boundaries outside of the free choice, outside of the expression of that want or desire between you and another. Now, let me be clear, on sexual matters, consent is crucial. For example, a healthy marriage depends upon the free choice of each party to give conjugal rights. But the problem of the sexual revolution, the secular view of consent, the gender theory view of consent, is that, is that in their view, consent is the only value. Consent says that the best we can expect from sex, morally speaking, is it's not rape. At least both parties agree. And as long as that happens, then let's go for it. But consent is worthless if it isn't underwritten by the biblical view of personhood, which is the view of embodied personhood, which is what we saw in Genesis 2-7, that a human being, a person, is not just body, but they're also soul united, body and soul. And so consent is not a platform upon which you can build an entire sexual ethic. It should be part of a sexual ethic, but it can't be the foundation of one. And so Christians understand that sex is not merely a bodily activity and therefore consent is not alone what is necessary. Sex is a union of persons, we'll talk about this more explicitly later, but sex is a union of persons, which implies way more than consent can prop up. And so, looking at the implications of gender theory on sex, we've seen the issue of first, restraint, second, the issue of consent. The third implication of gender theory on sex has to do with the issue of the person, the issue of the person. Now again, we've covered this ground already the first week and the second week. We've talked some about this, but it is so crucial for a Christian understanding of these things that I want to emphasize it again. And so one of the mistakes that the gender paradigm makes is that it separates the self from the body. As Christians would say, it separates the soul from the body. And when this happens, it is possible to objectify the body while reducing the person down. And the person is reduced down to just merely will or consent or uh, <clears throat> desire. And so sex-positive feminism, as it's known, and gender theory depersonalizes the body. And so that makes the body a mere mechanism. And so once selfhood is abstracted away from material reality, in other words, once the body and the soul are separated from each other as if they can, they can speak different truths about what a person is, then a person is characterized by nothing more than choice. And the human body becomes limitations. The human body becomes an obstacle. It becomes something that has to be overcome. <clears throat> and, and Wendell Berry calls this industrial sex. And I think it's a really helpful way he describes this and talks about this. Basically, in the way he talks about it, industrial sex wants to conquer human nature. And this is done by separating body and spirit and then exploiting the body. And, and this makes the sexual revolution like the industrial revolution because the industrial revolution, as Wendell Berry talks about it, is intent on conquering and uh, consuming the world. And so that's what's happening here only applied to a human being. All right, the fourth implication of gender theory on sex is, is the moral issue, the moral issue. In other words, there are moral dimensions to sex that secularism and gender theory and the sexual revolution simply don't account for. Let me illustrate this with some, uh, with some recent events. Maybe you, you remember back in the year 2021 when, when the point I'm making here was illustrated. So in 2021, several reports came out uh, talking about how syphilis is on the rise. 
and there, you know it's the syphilis uh, epidemic that's spreading uh, for people. And <clears throat> of course, there's a lot of stories about this, kind of in the in the in the news loop. And so then the, the, the commentary started saying, well, what should we do about it? Syphilis is on the rise. What should we do about it? And you go and you, you read all their suggestions. And the secular world, the gender theory people, the sexual, sexual revolution people, we're, we're all discussing this as if it was merely a medical issue. So, so what can we do within sex to limit the transfer of syphilis from one person to another? And in all their discussions, it was obvious that they were failing to realize that ultimately this is not a medical issue, that ultimately this is a moral issue. And in all their suggestions on how to deal with the rise of syphilis, they never once suggested that maybe people should stop having sex out of wedlock. Instead, they advised what they call safe sex. And we'll look at the history of that term in just a moment. But they advised safe sex. And so they never suggest that human beings need to actually change their behavior, that they need to actually change their sexual behavior. And then they never suggest that if you don't change your sexual behavior, that you should be responsible for the consequences of your behavior. So sex out of wedlock, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences are potentially venereal disease, which can be very harmful. And so the point again, it's looking at the moral issue. There are moral dimensions to sex that gender theory and the sexual revolution simply don't account for. Another example of this goes back to the 1980s AIDS crisis. We saw the same mistake made in the 1980s, 1990s with the AIDS crisis. Many of you were alive at that time, so you remember the sort of, uh, the sort of panic the sort of uh, the way this story dominated the news cycle for about a decade. And so then in the 1980s, as the AIDS crisis became a big news story, a young bureaucrat named Anthony Fauci led the federal government's response to the AIDS crisis. And so initially, Anthony Fauci, who was a public health official, he argued that it was promiscuous homosexual sexual behavior that needs to stop. He actually argued this in public. And he said, especially in the bathhouses, as they were known in San Francisco, where, where this kind of behavior uh, was, was happening, and in other cities, that this behavior just needs to stop. Now, why did he say this? Well, because scientifically, it was the homosexual activity that was transmitting the virus. And he knew that to be the case, and so he said it out loud in front of the cameras. And so initially, even using legal power to suppress homosexual activity, to change the behavior, to change the moral behavior that was causing the problem. But this message was quickly changed because the political power of the gay rights movement, even then, was so overwhelming that Anthony Fauci, persuaded by the leaders of the gay rights movement, immediately changed course and he came back out and he said, well, actually, actually, never, never mind on that, uh, and he said, no, actually, it's irresponsible and oppressive for the federal government to, to tell people how they should run their sex lives. And Fauci said, instead of people changing their moral behavior, they need to start practicing safe sex. And that's when that term uh, <clears throat> became really, really common. And so, at least in moral terms, we need to recognize that, that this concept of safe sex was developed as a public health response to HIV and the AIDS crisis, but ever since, the logic of, of, of sex has changed. Ever since, the logic of safe sex has been used as a lever by cultural progressives to transform our entire understanding of sexual morality in a very specific way. How, is our, how has our view of these things been transformed? Well, now sex is disconnected from moral choices. Now sex is, first, a desire of the will, and if you can find someone else that desires the same thing, then it's okay. But then second, there is a medical component where we know that there can be some sort of disease or you know, uh, something unhealthy that happens to the body as a result. So to account for that, we'll have safe sex. And that's all sex is. So there's no moral dimension to it. And that's now how sex is viewed. There are no moral constraints upon sex. 
And of course, in response, and we'll look at this more detail in a moment, but in response, Christians say that there is a givenness to the world that demands an ethical response to these things. And here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Notice how he starts to talk about these things. And there is a moral component. There is a moral dimension to this discussion. So Romans chapter 1, picking up in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That's, a, that's moral language. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Again, there's a moral dimension here. There's a theological dimension here. Continuing verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's moral language. When you talk about what ought to be done or what ought not to be done, that's always a moral category. And so the fourth implication of gender theory on sex is this moral issue. Christians recognize there's a moral dimension to these things that gender theory does not account for. The fifth implication of gender theory on sex is the issue of autonomy. The issue of autonomy. We've talked about this a little bit in previous weeks. So autonomy is when freedom becomes the telos, when freedom becomes the end or the purpose. And so when freedom as choice becomes the open-ended telos of human existence, the body quickly becomes a problem, and in particular for women, because their fertile physiology ties them to their bodies on these issues. And so the move towards autonomy is the move away from embodiment. But the only way to achieve this move away from embodiment is through technological control that separates sex from procreation. And so the underlying wish of gender theory is that we have control over our nature. And this is, this is what that word autonomy is referring to, that we have control over our nature, over our body, that we determine what is real or true about our body. And so you, you, you most often hear, hear this in the pro-abortion uh, discussion. And so you'll hear pro-abortion activists assert bodily autonomy. And so they might say something like, well, a woman has a right to choose in any scenario because bodily autonomy exists. So it's just asserted as this sort of a priori fact that you have to respond to. But, but the issue here is <clears throat> for a woman, does bodily autonomy actually exist? Think about how God made the human person, male and female, and what that means for a female in particular. In other words, if bodily autonomy exists, then why do women have unwanted pregnancies when they're on the pill? Doesn't seem like they have bodily autonomy, does it? Sounds like they're just saying it's the case but the fact of their nature says something different. Any assertion of bodily autonomy doesn't erase the fact that women have bodies that are designed to have babies. And the very fact that women find themselves pregnant even when they take steps to avoid getting pregnant means that women don't have bodily autonomy in the way it's asserted. God made the human body and the female body in such a way that they don't have autonomy over whether or not they're going to get pregnant on the matter of sex. In other words, women have bodies that are open to life. And this is how God made it. And this is what the women's body is designed to do. And, and you contrast the female body with the male body. Well, a man can have sex and not get pregnant. 
a, a woman does not have that ability, just biologically speaking. Her, or excuse me, a, a man's fertility doesn't mean his body is open to life in the way that a woman's is, in the way that she can carry a child. So if we're talking about bodily autonomy as basically the freedom to not get pregnant, which is largely what, what that language means when they use it, only men have complete bodily autonomy and that only men can have sex and not become pregnant. But that is simply not the case for women. And so we, we've considered these five implications of gender theory on sex. Again, you can see all this is tied into the broader sexual revolution. You look at these five things, uh, you look at the issue of restraint and consent and, 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 and all the rest, and, and you see here a particular vision for the world, a particular vision for relationships, and of course a particular vision for sex that's coming out of the sexual revolution and the gender paradigm. But I also want us to consider positively a Christian vision for these things. And I want us to see that a Christian vision of these things is better than the uh, vision of gender theory. And in particular on this final, that last issue I just addressed, the issue of autonomy. A Christian vision is better than the gender theory vision of autonomy. The secular paradigm, the gender theory paradigm, thinks of human beings as little more than a collection of atoms. This is dialectical materialism as an ideology. So dialectical materialism just says that only material things exist. If it's not a material thing, then it doesn't really exist. So God doesn't exist because he's immaterial. Heaven doesn't exist, that's immaterial. The soul doesn't exist because that's immaterial, and so on. So human beings are merely a collection of atoms. And that is an ideology that leads to division and destruction in society. So what does a Christian ethos of sex and body look like? Well, it does not begin with an assertion of autonomy. A Christian ethos of sex is built on what I'll call integrity. Let me explain what that means. A Christian ethos of sex is built on integrity rather than autonomy. You see, through the lens of autonomy within the sexual revolution, pregnancy is a threat. And we've got to do certain things to remove the threat. But through the lens of the Bible, pregnancy is not a threat. Pregnancy is a living mirror through which we can glimpse the love and creativity of God. When human beings are understood to be not just body, but also body and soul, that, that is when human embodiment becomes integral to who the person is, that the, that the soul and the body are united as one. They're not speaking different messages and thus contradicting each other, but as we saw in, in the first week, that they're a union, a unity, body and soul. And when you understand that that person as body and soul is in the image of God, and then you realize that human beings are, are made male and female, and that that male and female come together in a one flesh union within the context of marriage, and that wife gets pregnant, that that entire process is integral to the world God made, and it's integral to the kingdom of God. How so? Well, God, in love, created the world and human beings made in his image. And a pregnant wife is a picture of the creative love of God. This is part of the nature of things, on how God made it. This is beautiful. And so, in the world of gender theory, pregnancy is a threat. But in the world God made, within the kingdom of God, pregnancy is an illustration of the creative love of God. It's not a threat. It's not something that we need to avoid. It's something that we celebrate. And this is why when you look, for example, at the first wave feminist, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she got this so wrong. And on this point, again, we're not doing a full-blown history of feminism here, but I've heard it said a lot that from, from Christian people that, you know, first wave feminism did, some, did a lot of good things, and, you know, but second wave feminism, third wave feminism, I understand why, why you're hostile there to what they're doing. But, and my response to them is always, have you read the first wave feminists? <laughs> have you read Mary Wollstonecraft? Have you read what Mary Shelley said? And have you read what Elizabeth Cady Stanton said? 
A lot of people think, oh, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you know, women's suffrage, that's all it is. And <clears throat> but no, th there's a lot going on, even in first wave feminism, that, that, that creates second and third wave feminism. And so Elizabeth Cady Stanton, leader of the first wave feminist, kind of the intellectual of the first wave feminism, Susan B. Anthony gave out, went out and gave the speeches. Who wrote those speeches? Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote those speeches. So she's kind of the intellectual of first wave feminism. Well, she built her vision of women's liberation which included women's suffrage, but we're not gonna talk about that. She built her vision of women's liberation on a false conception of the self. She gets it wrong from the first presupposition she asserts. And so her conception of the self basically is she defines the self as solitary. And in particular for women, a woman is solitary. A woman is suspended in isolation. And she argued that each woman is alone and self-dependent. And so this is a radical individualism. This is, a, this is the sort of individualism that suggests self-sovereignty rather than God's sovereignty. And so it's radical individualism because in that assertion, there is no family, there is no community, there is no interdependence, and therefore there is no love. Love assumes a plurality of persons here. So if we're saying our nature is solitary, our nature is isolation, you have defined away the possibility of love. So be, be cautious before you assert your uh, agreement with first wave feminists. This is at the heart of what those first wave feminists were doing. And so Stanton's solitary self is alone and abandoned. It's this, it's like a shipwrecked person on a island all by themselves. And this view of, of personhood is a distortion of reality. This isn't true. This is not how God made the world. And, and this is evident before a human being is even born. The human soul begins in a pre-born child in the mother's womb. And so that soul is never alone. That child is held in and held together, not by her own, but by the mother. And so the child is held in the womb as a living soul, not by their own self-solitary effort, not by their own self-solitary will or choice. That child in the womb is not self-sovereign. Rather, that child is enveloped. And of course, you think of that immediately as a physical envelopment, the whole physical process of pregnancy, and that's certainly obviously true. But, but more importantly, more metaphysically, that child is enveloped by love. From the moment of that child's creation, that child is enveloped by love, enveloped by the love of the mother. Of the mother. And the, the love of the mother is the engine, not only of the existence of the child, but, but thereby of the existence of the whole world and eventually the spreading of the kingdom of God on the face of the earth. And so, in the sexual revolution, in the gender paradigm, pregnancy is a threat. But in the Christian vision of the world, pregnancy is an expression of the creativity and the love of God the Father. And so a Christian vision of these things, I would argue to you, is far better than the vision of the sexual revolution, namely because the Christian vision has at its, at its center love, love that starts with God, but then love that is seen from the mother to the child. And that's the story of humanity. It's not a story of self-sovereignty. It's not a story of autonomy. It's a story of love which implies plurality, which, which implies community and family. And that is a vision that is better than the sexual revolution. And so as we think about this Christian vision of these things, I want us to, to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want us to continue to unpack what a biblical vision of these things looks like. And so we've got to understand a few things. Now this is, this is a complicated passage, so <clears throat> take a deep breath. You know, when, you, when you try to follow the logic of the Apostle Paul sometimes, you know, this, is, this can be exciting stuff. And so we're going to try to follow the logic of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. I'm going to break this down into two main categories for you to see this. 
So I want you to see first the nature of sexual union, and then second, I want us to see the uniqueness of sexual sin. So I think that's the two main things Paul is showing us in this passage. So first, the nature of sexual union. So that's kind of the, the, the big thing here I want us to, to look at, the nature of sexual union. Now to see this, it, it's a little complicated because he's, he's working with a sever, several different things. And so to illustrate the nature of sexual union, he's going he's gonna to talk about two things. He's going to talk about a, a Christian's union with Christ, but then second, he's going to talk about a Christian's union with a prostitute. And in, in talking about both of those things, we're going to learn something about the nature, nature of sexual union. All right, so first, let's consider what Paul is telling us about a Christian's union with Christ. And in particular, let's look at verse 15 and 17. There's just a couple of simple statements here that I want you to focus on. First, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So pause right there. So that's the first statement. He's, he, he's teaching something about the, a Christian's union with Christ. And he says, your bodies are members of Christ. <clears throat> the second statement is verse 17 when he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So that's another statement about a Christian's union with Christ. But each statement, statement from verse 15, and then the statement from verse 17, each statement is, is, is teaching a different uh, a different angle on our union with Christ. So first, let's consider verse 15. Look at it again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So <clears throat> Paul here defines the believer's union with Christ as more than a spiritual union. You have to read this understanding that there is more than just a spiritual thing being said here. Believers are intimately joined to Christ such that even our physical bodies are united to Him. And I know that sounds esoteric, so let's think about what this means. So when you, when you read about the church in the New Testament, there's a lot of metaphors, and I won't go over all the metaphors, so that would be a, a helpful study. And one of the metaphors is that the church is called the Bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. Another metaphor, though, that we see later in 1 Corinthians is that the church is the body of Christ. And this is worked out in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. And there's other metaphors, you know, the, the church is called the house of God, it's called the temple of God elsewhere. But let's just focus on this metaphor in 1 Corinthians. We see it referenced here in chapter 6, but then later in chapter 12, about how the church is the body of Christ. And when you go read 1 Corinthians 12, we learn how the, the church is the body of Christ, and we each are members of the body of Christ, hands and feet and all the rest. But then we're also told that Christ is the head. So Christ is the head, and we are the body of Christ. And Christ reigns today at the right hand of the Father. Christ reigns today. Now, have you seen him, though? Well, no, I've not seen Christ. He's not appeared to me on a Damascus road. Maybe, maybe he has to you, but I've not seen Christ. And my hunch is most of you have not physically seen Christ. Or have you? Christ reigns today, but the church is the body of Christ. And so when you see the church gathered, especially on the Lord's Day, you see Christ. You see the body of Christ. The bodies of Christians are members of the body of Christ, are members of the church. We are intimately joined to Christ. And so when he says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is a physical thing. We are physically members of Christ. We are his body. Now go to verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So you notice the word spirit. The word spirit is very different from the word body or physical. So, so verse 15 asserts that we are, the, we are, the, we are united to Christ physically, but now we see a spiritual element brought in. So not only are Christians physically members of Christ, but Christians also become one spirit with him. That's what it says, becomes one spirit with him. That's the language he uses. So what does that mean? Well, this is the more spiritual element of our union with Christ. Our spirit is in union with Christ. By faith in Christ, you become one spirit with him. 
and we don't have time to unpack the doctrine of the union with Christ. It's a very dense doctrine. Romans chapter 6 is, is probably the, 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 the clearest explanation. But an overview of the doctrine of union with Christ is this. By faith in Christ... Through the eyes of God the Father, he sees that when Christ died, you really died too. By faith in Christ, when, when Christ died, you died too. That really happened. That's how God really looks at you. And by faith in Christ, when Christ was raised from the dead, you also were raised from the dead. That's, that reality, that truth, and the meaning of those things is really true of you too in the eyes of God the Father. And so we are united to Christ. What Christ has done through, by our faith in him, we have done. We're united to him in that spiritual reality. Of course, this is our salvation that I'm talking about here. And that's what he's referring to here, this idea in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That is, his death becomes your death in the sight of God. His resurrection becomes your resurrection in the sight of God. This is a very real thing that's happening in the reality of how God sees this. It's a very real union. And so that union is, Christians have a union with Christ that is physical, verse 15, and spiritual, verse 17. Now, take that thought over here, hold it over here for a moment. Paul's got several things he's doing, because it's easy to get lost. So we see the nature of a believer's union with Christ. But what he then does, as he interweaves this whole thing, is he's also talking about another type of union that Christians might involve themselves in, and that is a Christian's union with a prostitute. And so look here at verse 15. Notice how he brings this into the discussion. So verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So because a Christian's body is joined to Christ in a real way, that means, according to the logic of Paul here, a believers, uh, when, they, when they unite themselves with the prostitute, they are involving Christ with that prostitute. And he goes on, verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So, relations with the prostitute are not as casual as they might seem. In fact, it's similar to the union that occurs between married persons. He uses the language of the two become one flesh here. That's the language of married people. But he's now saying, well, in some sense, that's what's happening when, uh, when you have sex with a prostitute also. And so, someone united to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. And so, when a believer becomes one flesh with the prostitute, he joins Christ to that prostitute. That's what Paul's arguing here. And so he's talking, or excuse me, he's taking the holiness of Christ membership into the bed with him when the Christian unites himself with the prostitute. And so if a man is united to Christ by faith and then is united to a prostitute by flesh, this means that the members of Christ are taken to the prostitute and made members of her. And the only way this can be true is if the nature of sexual union is both physical and spiritual. And that's the main point I want you to see. The nature of sexual union is that it is not just a physical thing, but it is a spiritual thing. So, with that established, again, the nature of sexual union is as physical and spiritual. Paul then moves to a second thing, and that is he's going to tell us about the uniqueness of sexual sin. So, look now at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so you see here that Paul talks about how sexual sin is unique because the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And that's what it says in verse 18. 
So what's the significance then of someone sinning against his own body? You know, that's a, that's a really difficult saying. So sexual sin is a sin against the body. Because if you think about it, aren't a lot of sins a sin against my own body? Isn't drunkenness a sin against the body? Destroys the liver and all these harmful effects. Isn't gluttony a sin against the body? I mean, don't those sins also have a detrimental effect on the body? So why does Paul here say that sexual sin, why does he single out sexual sin as being a sin against the body? And I think the reason is because of what he argued back in verses 12 through 17, much of what we were saying earlier. When a Christian sins against his own body, he's violating the objective covenant reality that the body belongs to and is united to Christ both physically and spiritually. And thus, sexual sin unites Christ's body to a direct act of sin. And so it's a sin against the body in that fuller way. And this is why he says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And he says you are not your own. Your body is not your own. Talk about a statement against autonomy. You are not your own. You do not have rights to do with your body whatever you desire, whatever your lusts are. Christ is your master, not your desires, not your lusts. And so a Christian person, body and soul, was bought with a price, it says in verse 20, which means that God is interested in what you do with your body. And as it relates to sexual things, there is a physical and spiritual thing going on there. And so we see here the uniqueness of sexual sin, and the uniqueness of sexual sin is understood when we understand the nature of sexual sin. All right, so we're trying to cast a Christian vision that is better than the vision of the gender theory revolution. There is one thing I want to do, uh, and, and we, I'm, last week I only got through about half of what I wanted to cover. <clears throat> it was a terrible miscalculation on my part. But there is one thing from last week that I really feel important that we go back and touch on. So kind of reset your minds for a moment. Uh, you might remember last week we were talking some about uh, some of the myths of, uh, of gender theory, and one of those is how they use the, 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 the existence of intersex people to, to claim that there's a spectrum and, and to, to, to basically present this as if this proves you know, that, that sex is not binary. And we went through that. We talked exactly about what intersex is, biologically and why that's not the case, why people always biologically have a scientific biological definition, even when the visible evidence is sometimes uh, harder to discern. And so we also saw in this that there, there is such a thing as intersex people, that 0.018% of people are intersex. And so I think it's really important for us to think through the question of what should a Christian family do if they have an intersex child? It's very unlikely statistically, but it is certainly within the realm of possibility that a Christian family could have an intersex child. So I want us to think a little bit about what we should do, and we just have a few minutes. So I'm just going to outline three thoughts, recognizing that there's probably dozens of specific things we could attach to each of these thoughts. So what should a Christian family do if they have an intersex child? First, we need to be clear that people with unexpected bodies should not be shunned. Again, we talked so much last week about what intersex is, I cannot rehash all of that. But people with unexpected bodies cannot be shunned. We've, we've talked a lot about how human beings are either male or female. And you have to realize that what gender theory does with intersex people is dehumanizing. Because they claim that an intersex person proves the gender spectrum, and that person is neither male nor female. But understand, in Scripture, if we say that someone is neither male nor female, we have dehumanized the person. Because remember, essence precedes existence. Nature precedes existence. That there is a definition to human nature, male and female that we have to account for. And so if you're not male or female, if you're neither, then you're not a human being. And so it is dehumanizing for intersex people to be portrayed as neither male nor female. So that means, therefore, if you have an intersex child, 
There is a biological way to discern the gender or the, the biological sex that God has given them. And once that is discerned, then they must be treated as that. If they are a male, they have to be treated as a male, and to do anything else is to dehumanize that person. So that's the first thing. People with unexpected bodies should not be shunned, that is, they should not be dehumanized. Second, people with unexpected bodies should accept God's will for them. And this starts with the parents accepting God's will for them. And people are born with uh, <clears throat> deformities. They're still people. They're still loved uh, by their parents and, and by the church. And that should not be any different with an intersex person. And you also have to remember on this front that a covenant child is holy. That's what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. A covenant child is holy. And they've been made clean, it goes on to say in that verse, which means they are a temple of the Holy Spirit. They are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in them. And a temple of God is a holy thing. And we should not only accept God's will for them by resigning ourselves to the fact that this is what's happened, but as the intersex child in Flannery O'Connor's short story, Temple of the Holy Ghost, we can praise God for this child. We can trust God with all things. And so just like we would praise God for the birth of any child, so too we can praise God for the birth even of an intersex child. We shouldn't ostracize the child or whisper about the child. We should praise God for the child because this child is body and soul made in the image of God as either male or female. Praise the Lord. And then the third thing as we wrap up because we're out of time <clears throat> is to remind yourself and even the child as they grow up that people with unexpected bodies follow the path of Christ. We're told that Christ was simple and plain looking, but also Christ was tortured and then murdered, leaving marks on his body that were still present after the resurrection. And Jesus accepted the Father's will for his unexpected body. And so too, can we have faith to accept God's will for unexpected bodies that our children might have? All right, we are out of time. Feel free, we can have more conversations about this later. And also a reminder, there will be a fourth installment that comes out on the podcast that we're going to cover some other things uh, on this topic. So let's, let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the vision of the world that you have given us in your word, and we thank you for the beauty of it. We pray that uh, as we transition to worship now, that you would fill our hearts with joy and gladness, that we may worship you, and that we would be made full this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.